Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Great to see you all. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, like Leah said, welcome. If it's your first Sunday, I want to especially welcome you uh, to one of our gatherings. We're glad you guys are, are here today. Uh, we are in a series in the Gospel of John, as uh, Peter just said. So if you have a Bible and want to turn there, feel free. We're at the very end of the book in chapter 21. We have two more sermons left in, I think, what amounted to be about an 18-month sermon series, maybe a, t- a touch longer. So we're, we are uh, almost at the finish line. Um, but uh, catch you kind of up to speed, at least kind of where we've been for a couple of weeks here. Uh, we are after the resurrection of Jesus Christ now. And, and last week, we looked at that time when Jesus had breakfast with the disciples over a charcoal fire, bread and fish. Um, and it happened sometime after he rose from the dead. And if you ever thought that you would have liked to have been a fly in the wall of that conversation, uh, you're in luck because uh, the story continues and we see in part what they discussed, or, or at least in part what Jesus and Peter talked about right after the meal. So it's kind of today's uh, focus, and uh, as is always the case, we always learn a lot, not just from the history of kind of what happened, but more from the why and the how, and seeing ourselves in the story as well, but especially seeing gospel principle and Jesus as the hero. So that's um, going to continue to be our, our, uh, our main focus. So uh, today, pastoring, loving, and dying. Uh, you might be aware of this, uh, you might not, and next week I'll probably make a bigger deal of it being the last sermon in John. But all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, end differently, uh, which is interesting. Um, sometimes you kind of forget that or maybe you just don't know that, uh, but it's, and there's a reason for that, and I'll talk more about that probably next week. Um, but John ends with a conversation, just a really personal, intimate conversation with uh, one of his friends, with one of his disciples, Peter. Uh, and so that's, uh, we'll start it today. Today is kind of part one of two, essentially. Uh, he'll end it next week, but today is kind of the, the gist of it. So uh, let's read in full to begin, John 21, 15 to 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. All right, so a few things today. Uh, We'll start with a little bit of a discussion on pastoring and kind of move a little bit more deeply into the uh, nuts and bolts of this exchange that Jesus has uh, with Peter. But I want to start with this. Uh, This passage has long been understood by both ancient and modern Christians as a type of pastoral job description. Uh, not just for Peter, but for all pastors who would ever serve in his wake. Um, I know that most of you aren't pastors. Some of you are in the room. Uh, some of you might be in the future, whether here or somewhere else. But all of us, I think, uh, at least as Christians, should have a vested interest in what pastoring is, uh, primarily at least, uh, and also kind of by extension and definition, what it isn't, uh, and then what it should look like and maybe what it doesn't have to uh, look like. 
Um, and, and here, what's interesting is Jesus talks about it too. So uh, it's not just the Apostle Paul, though that's, you know, there's, there's equal authority and, and substance to that in Paul's letters in the New Testament, but the fact that Jesus actually here starts to broach this and, and enter into what Peter, uh, as kind of the, the chief or lead pastor of the church, the first church in Jerusalem, uh, what he would primarily do and be responsible for. So I think there's a vested interest here that, that all Christians should, uh, should have. Now, I'm not going to delve into this too exhaustively today topically, uh, but this passage, I think, gives us a helpful 101 perspective on it. Uh, that being, when you get down to it, pastoring is serving as a shepherd to other Christians. And with that, feeding them with the food of God's word. And then helping them uh, to be guided ahead or helping them to, pl- to plot ahead toward the ultimate promised land that awaits all who are in Christ. Like if you were to, there's many ways you could probably define like what pastoring is, but if I were to do it kind of with this passage helping with the vocab, that's basically what it is. Uh, That's pastoring. It's repetitive. It has the long game in mind, and it's principally concerned about food and feeding. Uh, Food and feeding. So the idea here with the metaphor is that Christians are like sheep. Jesus is the true shepherd who has come to save and guide and protect from wolves, but he has identified under shepherds. Uh, essentially, uh, pastors, people uh, in this life who would reflect him to the flock and who would do what shepherds do, which is primarily to protect, uh, but more than that, uh, to feed with the food of the Bible or, or God's word. Now, one uh, slight point of emphasis I'll make here uh, is that um, feeding Christians, so to kind of pull the thread a bit here thematically with this, when we think over what is food according to the Bible? Like if to kind of like push the metaphor a bit, what is food according to the broader New Testament, but even more specifically, the, the Gospel of John? Um, pastors, with that in mind, pastors feed Christians with the body of Jesus Christ himself, the true word of God. He is the bread and the wine. We've seen this in the, in the Gospel of John in chapter 6. This is a broader thing, though, really throughout all Scripture. Uh, But Jesus said, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. So um, all food and drink is a gift from God. We eat food and we drink drink uh, every day. But Jesus is saying there's a real food and a real drink, an ultimate food and an ultimate drink that you should be concerned about, that I'm concerned about for you. And it's me. It's my body. It's what I'm going to do for you in laying my body down to be crucified for your sins. And when you spiritually nourish yourself on that and eat that, you become my people. Uh, you become nourished, you become saved, you become enlivened, you come to life, uh, essentially. And so there's a broader thing there in John 6, you might be aware, it's actually a pretty long discourse that Jesus gives about the bread of life, himself being that bread of life. But uh, this is, so in other words, when pastors are called to feed, and when, when Jesus himself is saying, feed my lambs, this is not just a random metaphor. Like, as, as if food could be anything. Uh, he's saying, feed them with me, feed them with my body. In other words, not every word of the Bible should be equally understood as food because it itself, the Bible itself, doesn't call all of its parts and subgenres food equally. In one sense, it is all food because it's all God's word, but it itself doesn't, doesn't say it's all, in every sense of the word, equally food. When Jesus comes and says these things, it, it changes. It changes things. It it heightens the idea of what is primarily food or or the best kind of food in 
God's word. Uh, or in other words, there is a bread in the Bible that all other crumbs find their place underneath. Uh, all other crumbs of God's word find their place underneath or their, um, their reality from. Because those crumbs are still God's word, they can point to the better loaf, uh, but there is still a difference. And so, not every word of the Bible should be understood uh, as food in the same sense. A pastor's job description, then, is to help teach the Bible uh, in that light, in a Christ-centered, clarifying way to show how all the parts fit with the whole and how, as a story, it moves us from small to big or foggy to clear or lesser to greater as we move from the Old to the New Testament. Another way to say it um, would be a a pastor— feeds Christians with the word by showing Christians where Jesus, the bread, is in whatever particular passage of Scripture they happen to be reading. And so, again, the the flip side of that would be uh, to to teach a passage of Scripture and not get to the gospel in it is to fail to feed. It is to fail to pastor effectively. Uh, to, To give Christians rules but no gospel is to fail to feed them. Uh, to, to, to preach and teach a passage without getting to Jesus, without Jesus being the context, misses the mark. Um, and I'll just speak on, um, uh, on behalf of all the pastors here, too, when I say, we don't really, as we feed you guys and think about feeding you, we don't care if you win Bible trivia quizzes. Like, that, that's not, if you do, great, that's, that's fantastic. But that's not really our goal. Like, the, the, our goal is to help you see Jesus in every passage. We want you to get to him. Uh, so Jesus says to Peter here, your job at the end of the day is to constantly point them to me. To me as a person, to me as a son of God, to me as a savior, to me as the crucified one, to me as the raised one, and to me as the only meal that they will ever need. That, that, that's what he has for Peter. And again, for all pastors who would ever serve in his wake, throughout all of history, all of time, all cultures, uh, all languages, uh, he, he's saying, your job at the end of the day is to make much of me to them so they can nourish themselves on my mission and, and what I have done for them in the world, which is laying my life down that they might be saved from the wolves of sin and may be given the bread of eternal life. Okay, lots more to say about that, but I want to start with that because this passage is definitely saying this, uh, and it's something that... Um, you may have uh, thought about yourselves or, in reading this in the past, uh, begun, begun to have broached it yourself a little bit as well. So uh, pastoring 101 is, um, is a piece to this. Okay, moving on from that, though, to this question of, uh, do you love me? This is so our, our chance here to kind of dissect and go a bit deeper into the conversation uh, a little bit more. So I mentioned last week, if you were here, um, that Jesus showed no partiality between the disciples who remained on the boat and Peter who jumped off the boat to swim to him because uh, our devotion matters less than we think it does. Our devotion to God matters less than Jesus' devotion to us. So we talked a lot about that. I'm not going back into that. But with that said, and not taking anything away from that, Jesus still does look at us as individuals, as real people he loves, uh, people with names and stories and struggles and pain and doubts but also uh, particular callings in life, maybe with particular um, spirit-given gifts that he, he intends to use to build up his, 
his church. And we just talked about pastoring, but there are many other kinds of spiritual gifts as well uh, talked about elsewhere in the New Testament. And that's going to differ from person to person. And so sometimes the way the gospel comes to us is catered. And, and interestingly, again, the gospel of John, as, as I said before, ends with, with some words on this. It ends with this very personal and catered conversation between Jesus and Peter. Um, and so I'm saying this kind of to summarize a bit, but also to say that when you read these things, there's places to see our story in it, and we're, I'm going to do that here in a second. I think that in a way, Jesus is speaking to all of us, not just Peter here. But there's also a sense to which Peter is not us. Like, there's also a sense to which we're kind of outside the circle, uh, looking into something that's unique. And, you know, so I kind of already talked about that a little bit when we talked about pastoring. Most of you won't be pastors. Uh, you might be pastoral, uh, in a way, towards a friend or as, as a community group leader or something, and that, that's, that, that's different. That's great, though. Um, but most of you won't be, in, like, in this sense of the word, like Peter was to the church in Jerusalem, a pastor, and that's okay. So in that sense, you're outside, and you're looking at someone, the, the principle of someone else pastoring you and caring for you, and the invitation is to see Jesus in that. Um, you know, when you look at the pastors of this church or any church, um, though we're all sinners and we will fail, we will not always do this well. Um, when, you see, when you see God using a pastor to love and to feed and to guide and to counsel uh, and to just be there for you when you're sick or whatever it is, you're seeing a picture of Christ. But, but in that moment, the lesson is not, okay, now you have to burden yourself with like, you yourself have to be this, be this person too and do, do it perfectly to other people. That's not the lesson. The lesson is receive from that. And so you see how it's different? In one sense, we're like Peter. In another sense, sometimes the lesson is don't too quickly connect yourself with this. It's okay to be on the receiving end uh, and to be sheep because in, in a sense, we're all sheep. Pastors are sheep too to the, to the chief shepherd. Okay, with all that said though, uh, in terms of digging deeper into this, uh, this um, conversation that, that Peter and Jesus have, uh, again, like I said before about the, the pastoring 101 thing, there's widespread agreement here uh, throughout history that Jesus is, uh, in a way, reversing Peter's threefold denial of Christ that happened earlier when Jesus was arrested. In fact, some of your English Bibles probably have like a, um, a subtitle put in there that says the reinstatement of Peter or something. It's just it's this very um, almost, I don't want to say obvious because it's not, like we always see it when we read, but it is uh, almost there. Kind of this obvious thing that Jesus and John the author is doing uh, in triplicate to kind of counteract or reverse the, the three times that, G that Peter said, I don't know Jesus, uh, earlier in the story. Uh, which also, by the way, uh, happened at a charcoal fire. You guys remember that? There's two charcoal fires. There's the charcoal fire where, where Peter denied Jesus three times, and now there's the charcoal fire here where Jesus is reinstating uh, Peter or uh, kind of reversing at least or forgiving him. Uh, like Peter Carlson, a lot, a lot of Peters here today. Uh, like Peter Carlson, or Pastor Peter, uh, said before, um, Jesus isn't crushing Peter the Apostle with this, you know? He's not spotlighting his sin. Uh, but at the same time, you can tell he's addressing it by doing this in, uh, in triplicate. So... Um, so that's what's going on here. Jesus is, Jesus is reversing Peter's denial by asking Peter three times, do you love me, and giving Peter this chance uh, to, to step into that and, and to say, yes, I'm not, I, I'm not denying you anymore, or I, I believe in you, I, I love you, 
You've loved me, I love you. And um, now, a couple of quick things though here uh, on what we might call clean slate theology. Um, all right, so uh, by that I just mean this kind of counteracting, this kind of like idea that Jesus is wiping the slate clean for Peter uh, here, uh, which is true. So, so the pros to this uh, idea is that Jesus does in fact wipe us clean with his blood. He reverses our sin in life, every single one. Like I, I would think about it this way, like every sin that we commit is countered with an equally counted drop of his blood. Every sin we commit is countered with an equally counted drop of his blood. That's, so the, the, the three and three thing there, I think, it's not, in other words, Jesus doesn't just say, do you love me twice? You know, it's, it's like, it's like there's, there's, there's grace for every single uh, time that we sin and fail and, and miss the mark and uh, disbelieve and have doubts and, and think too highly of ourselves and hurt people. Um, there's grace for, as Christians, there's a drop of blood of, for every single time, past, present, and future, that, that this happens. And so we, we see that here, and how Jesus invites us into a new life with him, where we unashamedly affirm that we know him now, and that he knows us, and that he is our Savior and King. Okay, so that's, that's the pro to clean slate theology. The con, or at least what we need to be careful of when we talk about it, is the gospel is not about second chances. Uh, I like how that song said, uh, second, second chances, because we realize the second chances aren't enough, like in life a lot. When we get a second chance, like, it, it doesn't, we're just, second chance is like a second chance to screw up, you know? It, it's, it's, never, it's never enough. Um, and so there's second, second chances, second, second, second chances, and, and beyond. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that, um, that the idea of second chances has been demolished and destroyed. Like, like God now, when he, when he thinks of us as his people, is not thinking in terms of second chances, because that implies that it's on us somehow, that he's expecting something of us, has high expectations for us, and that he has some kind of thing for us to do, and now you'd better do it, because I've given you a second try. Um, but the Bible never talks that way. It, it's, uh, grace doesn't uh, talk that way. The law does uh, in the Bible, and it's, it's meant to, to set the stage for the better word, the better word of, of grace. Um, but, but again, it's not a, another chance to get it right. It's hope that no longer is my life left up to me and my obedience. It's, it's left up to Jesus. I, I think Christians should say, Christians should talk less in second chance ter- chances terms and more in Jesus is my chance. He himself is my chance. Uh, you know, to, to, to rob the God, strip the gospel of that idea and, and to make it, yeah, Jesus spilt his blood and died for the sins of the world and, di- and did this amazing thing. And then to say that we just get this second chance at something, it's just like, um, it, 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 it cheapens it. it. It cheapens the cross. And so, uh, it's left up to Christ. He is our chance. And even that song was beautifully got at. We move from second chances to second, second chances to just, how do you do this, God? How do you love so well? Uh, that's the movement we take as Christians uh, a lot of times as we mature. We move from second chance thinking uh, to just not thinking about ourselves at all, but, but thinking about a God who loved us so much. And we think, how, did, how can he do that? Because I can't. And we rest in that. Does that make sense? See, like the apples to oranges-ness 
about that and how, how much better it is. Okay, now digging even deeper, though, into this, because uh, there's more than this. There's this, um, this first time that Jesus asked the question, there's a, an added clause. He says, do you love me more than these? And that could be read a few different ways. It could be read as, uh, Peter, do you love me more than the fish you just caught or your fishing equipment? That would be to say, do you love me more than your profession or your job? It could be read as, uh, do you love me more than you love your friends? More than you love the disciples who are also right there around the fire. So they would be probably hearing, or part, some of them maybe were probably hearing this uh, conversation. Or it could be read, uh, do you love me more than they love me? Do, do you love me more than the, 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 than the disciples love me? And all three of these uh, technically are possible. Like I think... Um, all three of them could lead to very good uh, kind of like um, application or good like, like outcome theologically that, that would be consistent with New Testament teaching. Um, but as you kind of look at the swath of like commentary and teaching on this and kind of look into lingu- the, the linguistics and context of it all, it's likely the latter. It, it's likely that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than they love me? Do, do you love me more than the disciples love me? But that creates questions, right? Questions like, well, why is Jesus asking Peter to compare himself with them or, or to rise above their apparently lesser love? Uh, I thought grace disarmed comparison games, not provoked them. Um, doesn't this just create a context for Peter to brag? And, and why is Jesus kind of seemingly doing this with the disciples, like, put, like putting a little wedge there and seemingly kind of do, like differentiating uh, and so we talked about the non-partial love of Christ before, like last week. This doesn't seem consistent with that. Those are all great questions, uh, but it, they're resolved when we uh, realize that it's likely that Jesus is asking this more from a self-awareness perspective. So uh, the, the inflection of the question is probably, uh, Peter, do you really think you love me more than they do? Do you really think that deep down? Because remember Peter's story arc in the Gospel of John? Uh, I, I think this, this whole exchange is a revisitation and kind of a, kind of a conclusion of Peter's overconfidence, of uh, Peter's uh, uh, overtrust in the self when he made all kinds of false promises and vows to Jesus. Not to mention like two seconds ago that he was the only one who jumped off the boat and, uh, and, and swam to Jesus on, on the shore. This is a revisitation of, of Peter's story arc, of his movement from trust in self uh, to, to not. And so Jesus' question then is, is not meant to divide, it's meant to bring him down and, and bring him lower in, in love uh, and, to show, and to show him that maybe that's not the question at all. And maybe you don't love, uh, actually love me more than them. And maybe that's not not why I came, is, to, is to, to classify and label and clarify and measure uh, on that level. So Peter's response, and you can almost just, the way this is written is masterful. Like, you can almost feel it. Like, it even says that he was hurt at one point. This is not, if, if Jesus is say, trying to heighten John's love, it, there might be some flattery or, or some, uh, some pride here. But Peter, you can tell, you can feel a change in him. Uh, here, the way this is written, when Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he doesn't say, yes, Lord, 
I know I love you more than they love you. Haven't I always proved that to you? Haven't I always been more ambitious, more zealous for you? Uh, wasn't I the one who jumped in the boat, uh, like two sec- off the boat two seconds ago? Um, this is a more humbled Peter, that learning to have a lower perspective on himself and that comparisons ultimately have no place in the kingdom of God because of grace. So Peter says he loves him and he means it, but at the same time, he doesn't think he loves Jesus more than they do. Um, and, and so I, I would say, when, when we, the, the broader idea here for us, if there was kind of a rabbit trail um, and aside for this for all of us, is that when we start to measure things, we veer from grace. When we start to measure things religiously or spiritually, um, even with like good intentions sometimes, we veer from the principle of grace. Uh, and and like, like I would say personally for myself, like when I was reading this this week, I was thinking, um, do I love Jesus? And, my, you know, my, my answer sort of, you know, to myself, and now in front of you all, but to myself was, um, I, I, I love Jesus deeply. But I'm sure that I don't love him as much as other Christians. I mean, how could I ever measure that anyway? Like, do I actually think I love Jesus more than anybody on, on the planet? And all of a sudden that just starts to sound kind of odd, right, and arrogant. And, and I know I don't. I know I don't. And, uh, and so I think, like, on a personal level, to think, I do love Jesus because he first loved me, and that's enough, is kind of the landing point. And that's what I encourage you guys with, to think, do you love Jesus? Like, the answer as a Christian is, yes, I do, because he first loved me. But you don't measure it. You don't compare yourselves to other Christians with it. You believe that the fact that you love Jesus is a gift given to you, not something you worked up yourself, and you kind of go on with your day. And that, I think, is what Jesus here in this masterful kind of like provoking, exposing dialogue is helping Peter with uh, to see that, do you really think that you're out front? And, and Peter, I think, is saying, I love you, but I don't know if I can say that I'm out front. And to that, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished for Jesus uh, in, in that moment. Um, I'd also add to this too, I, I've been, uh, I think, sharing this with a few of you in the room in recent weeks, so bear with me if you've heard this, but kind of on a broader level, when we talk about loving God or uh, measuring sometimes uh, our, our Christian life, um, I think about it this way. Uh, sometimes the Bible says, ride a bike. It doesn't say that, but it, I'm making a point here. Um, sometimes the Bible says, ride a bike. Uh, but what Christians often think it says is, Ride a Schwinn-focused 1600 road bike exactly 50 miles, do it in under three hours, wear a helmet, take this exact route, only stopping once for a break, use hand signals, be sure to pass at least three other cyclists, and if you don't do it precisely this way, you're a bad Christian, and you should start over. And this is how we live sometimes. And it doesn't say that, though. It just says, ride a bike. Uh, better yet, it says, Jesus rode one for you. And he wrote it to you because he wanted so much to be with you. And and that enlivens our bike riding. It it enlivens our cycling uh, in our life and just enables us to live freely and and, and not to measure and to be crushed by the weight of the law that we want to impose so much on us because we so much want to impress and compare and climb a mountain we were never meant to climb. All right? End of aside. Let me come back then. Uh, We'll finish this by reading, let me reread the last couple of verses, and we'll look at Peter's journey here, grace, death, and glory. Verse 18, very truly I tell you, 
when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when, when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. All right, so uh, at, at face value, in case it's not clear, um, Jesus is telling Peter that one day he's going to be crucified. That's what stretch out your hands means. So he's saying, uh, one day you'll be crucified like I was, and, and in that death, you will glorify God. So that, that the broader principle here, you know, for us might be that um, our suffering for being a Christian does bring fame, honor, and glory to God because it, is, it, it images Christ's suffering for us. It puts it on, like, it, it's like, it's like, a, <clears throat> like a replay of, of, a, of the greatest song of all time. Uh, sung on that cross 2,000 years ago. It's like when we suffer, it, it glorifies God. It, um, it brings him fame. All right? But there's more than that. There's, there, that's the face value thing going on. But, uh, but there's more than that, like there usually is in, in Scripture. There is, I think, a couple of things. There's a symbolic suggestion of what constitutes the Christian life for all of us, one. And two, there's implications for pastoral ministry here uh, as well. But let, let me start with, the, I'm going to walk through two of these uh, things to end here today. Let's start with the first one. With this idea of um, giving us all a glimpse into what every Christian's journey looks like. Um, so I, I said before how I think this is not just Jesus and Peter, this is Jesus and all of us in, in, in one sense. Um, now, in one sense it's not though, right? Because none of you are going to be crucified, uh, Probably. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, and so it, it, in one sense, you're on the outside of this circle. We're all looking in, right, to, to something that happened historically just to Peter. Um, and if tradition tells us anything about how the disciples died, Peter was one of two, I think, who were crucified, maybe the only one. Uh, all the disciples died horrible deaths um, a- after this. Uh, but I think Peter was the only one or maybe one of a couple that, that, were, that died in that manner. Um, and so in one sense, we're on the outside. In another sense, though, spiritually, there's, like a, there's broader spiritual principles here that I think Jesus is saying, you can expect something, every Christian can expect something kind of like what he's saying here. Not in the same way, not in the exact same manner physically, and certainly not as we measure it. It'll all be a little bit different. But every Christian can kind of understand their journey as being pronounced upon us like Jesus is pronouncing this journey uh, upon, upon Peter. Uh, and so to see that, though, we have to take the literalness out of it, which, again, with John, you just have to do sometimes, and with the Bible, to understand its layered depth. Um, but here's the thing. The, the movement from dressed yourself, or when you were younger, you dressed yourself, the movement from that to a place of now, when you're older, someone else will dress you, is remarkably similar to how the Bible understands the gospel. The the movement that we all take as Christians, whether we think about this in a pre-conversion to conversion way, or probably better yet, just as we grow as Christians on a day-to-day basis, the, the movement from law to grace that the story takes us through, or the movement from doing something yourself for yourself, dressing yourself, covering yourself, covering your shame, taking care of yourself, 
to having someone else do all of that for you uh, is, again, uh, remarkably similar, uh, if not pretty much a direct one-to-one with how the Bible talks elsewhere um, about what our journeys are like, what it looks like to come to really understand uh, grace when we kind of age in the faith, uh, you, you you could say as well. In other words, when we come to Jesus, this is what happens. When we come to Jesus, we move from doing things ourselves to having him do it for us, from trying to cover ourselves to having him cover us. Uh, Think of uh, Adam and Eve. If you know that story in Genesis 3, remember after they sinned, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, and God says uh, in in patient love, uh, no, no. I, I, I will make better clothes for you. They'll be warmer, they'll be animal skins, and he, and, and he does it. Uh, it it's, it's this first instance, very beginning of the Bible, that we see human beings will always try to be saving themselves. The first thing they do is they try to save themselves. They try to be good apart from God. They try to cover themselves and their shame. They... they this is the, the lie they listened to when they, when they first sunk their teeth into the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God says to that, no, th- this is, I'm going to dictate the story this way. You will constantly try to save yourselves, but I will always be saving you instead. And, and there's that movement from the former to the latter that happens. It's like a tennis match going back and forth a lot. When Jesus gets here, game over. Uh, it, is, it is one-way love. It is one-way covering. And so the New Testament says, put on Christ, uh, not put on uh, yourself and your moral effort. And so to uh, go back to this then, too, in the process of all of that, we come to realize that when we believe in Jesus, we die uh, to our old selves. We die to the, like the book of Romans says, we die to the law that we tried to use to cover us. And we stretch out our hands to cling to Jesus, the only one who can truly cover us with, with his love. Like, th- that is your, if you're a Christian, that is your story. That's not even, I'm not saying this as like, this can be your story, or try to make this more your story. I'm saying, Jesus is saying, no, he, this is your story. Uh, whether we feel it or, or totally feel like we're, wherever we are in that, we may not know, but Jesus is pronounced, this is what will happen uh, to you. So we don't have to be crucified physically or die as a martyr for this to be our story. This is figuratively a word for us. It's already been pronounced upon our lives uh, as Christians just as much as Peter's. In fact, I would say it this way, uh, if you could reword what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is saying, you will come to understand increasingly as you age that grace is more total than you think it is. There will be less I did this myself in your vocabulary as you age. You will come to understand that I am more total, that I am in complete control of your salvation, and that nothing you do or don't do can change what I declare to be your destiny. That is eternal life with me. And when it comes to implications then, this is the second uh, thing I was referring to, for leadership in the church, and what that says to us about the true nature of the gospel. I mean, if you think about, like, this is a movement-starting moment, in one sense, it's a very kind of, like, worldly thing to say, I realize, but it kind of is that. Jesus is starting a movement, in a sense, here. Um, If this were any other kind of, like, worldly, 
human-centered phenomenon, like a, a works-based religion, you know, uh, Peter, the chief disciple and eventual lead pastor of the first ever church in Jerusalem, would be talking about fame and fortune and, you know, a bazillion followers on Instagram or whatever, uh, and uh, power. Um, but instead, Jesus says, uh, so here's how this is going to go. You're going to die. And you're my number one, and you're going to die the most shameful, horrific death um, Crucifixion, what basically was that, that, that publicly, uh, that's what's going to happen. And then maybe to the other, you know, guys around the fire, oh, you guys too. Like, it's, this is not how you'd like start. It's kind of like, you know, if they're, if, if they're hearing this without a filter, um, you know, the response probably is, wait, what? Like, how is that a good plan? And the response to that is, well, for the one who died and then rose again and who saves us by way of that event not by our strength or our wisdom or our might, but saves us by the way of, of that event, it makes perfect sense. Uh, in fact, uh, let me just close with this. Uh, this, I think, again, this is um, uh, the, uh, what Jesus is saying, the, the intent of Christ's words here. Uh, he's saying, my kingdom will be built on the leaders being servants, feeders, short-order cooks, who serve in the back of the greasy, stale diner. They will be more like lowly shepherds than warriors or captains. Some of them will even die right when you think they're at their peak, hitting their ministry stride. That's when they'll die, or something else limiting will happen to them. So that you can see this Christianity thing is built on the weakness of men, not their ascension. And it's built on the message of grace, which confounds the wise spoils the story of the law and glorifies the only one who can truly save sinners in the end because in the end, it's my stretched out hands that matter most. It's my mighty nail-pierced hands and my outstretched arms that shows forth the enduring love of God forever. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, Thank you, God, for ultimately what it says about you. Um, We thank you for what it says about pastoring, for what it says about the Christian journey, uh, and and about grace. And we thank you um, for what it ultimately says about you, about being the one who ultimately stretched uh, his hands out that we might be gathered in, held dear, and and consoled. Uh, Thank you for dying for our sins and for building the church uh, on weakness, not on wisdom. Uh, on brokenness, not on strength, on smallness, not on bigness, to show that it's always about you. Uh, it, this, this is not a self-help program. This is not a, a pyramid scheme. This is not something that, that, that is like uh, uh, an ascension manual. We're not scaling Everest as Christians. Uh, we are at the bottom of the mountain, constantly looking at the one who in love came running down to be with us. And so whether it's our life of suffering, whether it's what leadership looks like, uh, whether it's what the principle of grace ultimately is, whether it's that we need to be reminded that we are being dressed by someone else, we're not dressing ourselves, or the bazillion other things in this, this, this book, this Gospel of John alone, uh, whatever it is, uh, you're, you're constantly ringing that bell for us forgetful people uh, who, who seek to add to you, who seek to cooperate too much, with you, uh, and, and at, 
Instead, we're invited to the table uh, to eat, to the fire, to sit down, uh, and to hear about the one whose nail-pierced hands bring us in and adopt us as sons and daughters. In Christ we pray. Amen.